listeners, I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Jasmine Darznick, best-selling author of the recently released historical novel, The Bohemians. The book was inspired by the early life of Dorothea Lange, who went on to become one of America's most celebrated photographers, most notably for her Depression-era photo, Migrant Mother. One reviewer writes this about The Bohemians. You'll never look at a Dorothea Lange photograph the same way after reading Darznick's compelling portrait of the trailblazer who carved a glorious path through 1920s San Francisco. A superb read. Jasmine, welcome to the show and thank you for what truly is a superb read. I love The Bohemians. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So Jasmine, the book, The Bohemians, it's peppered with so many fascinating real life artists and poets and writers, and they all seem to have congregated in 1920s San Francisco. So with so many fascinating characters, why or how did you settle on Dorothea Lange as your central protagonist in the novel? I knew Lange's photography, which to answer your question is probably one of the hooks is that I so admired her as an artist. But even though I had grown up in the Bay Area, I did not know that she had been in San Francisco during the 20s. I really didn't associate her with the city at all. Um, so that was an exciting discovery to know that this terrifically, enormously influential artist had made her home in San Francisco. And the book was really then an opportunity to tell a part of her story that we don't necessarily know. So People might know Migrant Mother and her work during the Depression, but here you've got her as yet undiscovered, untested, making her way through the city as a young woman. Well, I think her story, especially in that period of her life, it begged to be told because she has so much grit. I mean, she was raised by the single mother and her father abandoned the family and she had to support herself, of course, her whole life. And she started out as a portrait photographer. But what was really striking to me, and I wonder if it was the same for you, is that she was so unsentimental about her work and she refused the title artist, preferring to call herself a tradeswoman. Why do you think she was so adamant not to claim that title artist? You know, I think it's really complicated, but I'll take a stab at it. She always knew she'd have to support herself. And being an artist at the time, or being a photographer in the mold of, let's say, Alfred Stieglitz, was just not within reach for her, or she did not think that it was within reach. She really knew that she had to make a living for herself, and she didn't have time to indulge certain fantasies of you know, becoming the great artist with a capital A. So she really took pride in that. I don't think it's with resentment that she called herself a tradeswoman. She took a lot of pride in building up her business and worked enormously hard. She worked very, very hard as a portrait photographer. She was a self-made woman at a time when women were just entering the professions. So I think it's to do with being a woman, being working class, and um, really being at a time in history where artist was mostly reserved for men and men of means. 
you know, it shows all the more her determination and her talent that in a world like that, an era like that, that she still rose to the top. Can you tell the story of how she landed in San Francisco? Right. I'd love to, because I think this is one of the reasons I was so drawn to her. When Dorothea Lange was in her early 20s, she had kind of stalled out in her career back in New York, and she decided she wanted to take a trip around the world. Now, she didn't have much money. She saved it up, and she got on a train intending to travel. World War I was on, so she couldn't go to Europe. She decided she wanted to go out west, and then she dreamt of going eventually to Mexico, Hawaii, and the Far East, and, um, you know, really hadn't thought it all the way through. So she gets on a train, and no sooner does she arrive in San Francisco than she's pickpocketed, and all that money that she'd saved up to travel is gone, and she's suddenly marooned in the city. And this is a true story. It really did happen. And when I encountered that, I was just so enraptured, and I thought, how did she survive, much less thrive? Within a couple of years, she was running the most successful portrait studio in San Francisco, that doesn't just happen. There's a story there. Well, and of course, when she finds herself stranded and penniless, that's when she encounters the other, I would say, very central character in the book, Caroline Lee. And that is such a beautiful friendship that you portray in there. Can you talk about that storyline a little bit? Absolutely. I think of the novel as a love letter to San Francisco and also a love letter to friendship, especially friendships between women. So in The Bohemians, she meets a woman who's mixed race. Um, this is based on a person who really did work with Dorothea Lang. Dorothea Lang, when she ran her first photography studio in San Francisco, had a Chinese-American assistant. So Caroline Lee in the novel is an imagining of who that woman might have been. She has not been given much space in Dorothea Lang's story, but it just seemed to me that that would have been a really interesting relationship. These two women from such different worlds working together so so closely at this time when the country has entered World War One. There's daily increasing discrimination against the Chinese. Dorothea Lang would not have been unaware of that, and to be working so closely with a Chinese American assistant would have made her very cognizant of those kind of tensions that were so so present in 1920 San Francisco. For a story that takes place in the jazz age and and features all these amazing creative people, the underbelly, the anti-immigration sentiment, you did not shy away from that. Was that an important element you thought you needed to reveal in this story? You know, I didn't necessarily set out thinking it would be the most prominent strand in the novel. I knew I wanted to write about Lang and this assistant. And from there, I was just really following the characters and imagining what would their experience have been in this time, in this place in history. There was so much I did not know before I began writing and researching this book. So even though I grew up in California, in the Bay Area, no less, I didn't know that San Francisco was a segregated city, that the Chinese had been, as a matter of law, confined to this small district ghetto, really, in the city. I had no idea about the passage of the exclusion laws um, that would come about in the 1920s. So really, you know, I started with a pre-existing interest, I'd say, but in writing the book, it just became increasingly clear to me that it would have been an important part of these characters' lives. The setting of the Bohemians, 1920s San Francisco, 
It is clearly a character unto itself. And for me, I was transported back to those streets and monkey block where so many of these artists lived, including Caroline, for that matter. And I was wondering, looking back at that time and place, Jasmine, do you think you would have liked to live in that era? (laughs) Oh, I have been besotted with the 1920s. I think a lot of us have this fascination with the 20s. So there's the glamour and the glitz of it. And part of me says, yes, absolutely. And then knowing the 20s now, you know, in writing this book, I really had to look hard at the 20s and see, as you call it, the underbelly of the 20s. So I'm not so sure, you know, I think it would also have been a really complicated and in some cases, really harsh place to be, right? If you were a woman of color, as Caroline is, and as I am, um, it doesn't take long before the fantasy starts to, you know, lose a little of its sparkle. Um, But for the clothes alone, I would go, I would go for the clothes and the music and the great scene and, and that feeling, I think, of promise for women, especially Women are just feeling their way into a new world, and it must have been very exciting. Well, you certainly capture that. So, Jasmine, The Bohemians is your second novel, Mm -hmm. and it follows your previous acclaimed book, Song of a Captive Bird. And for listeners who haven't read that novel, it's inspired by the life of the Iranian poet Farouk Farouksad, who often is described as a rebel poet because of how she broke so many barriers and risked so much to do so, writing about sex and other societal taboos. But I was wondering, why did you choose to tell Farouk's story as fiction rather than, say, through memoir, which is how you approached your first book about your Iranian mother, Lily, when you wrote The Good Daughter? I'm really interested in stories that sit at the intersection of history and the imagination. So in the case of Dorothea Lange and also in the case of this poet, that I wrote about in Song of a Captive Bird, there's so much that either isn't known or can't be known. And that's the space that really excites me as a writer. That's where I feel like I can contribute something that's different and fresh is by imagining my way into those lesser known parts or the silences or the absences. Well, you certainly found your home as a writer in fiction, but I mentioned earlier that your first book was actually a memoir about your mom, and it made me want to ask you a little bit more about your own family experience. I know when you were five, you and your family left Iran and eventually ended up in California, but can you share a memory or two of what your first impression was like when you got to this country? Well, we came in 1978, just on the eve of the Iranian Revolution of 1979. And sometimes I'm asked why California or why San Francisco? And I think California, well, because in Iran, they'd been watching all the films coming out of Hollywood. And <laughs> like everyone else, they were lured. You know, I mean, not everyone else, but often that figures in why people come to California is that they've um, they've seen the films and they have dreamed the dreams through the cinema. That was the case with my parents. And then I think San Francisco, news had gotten to Iran for sure by the 1970s of the summer of love. And there were all these associations of which San Francisco really is. It's a real freedom loving city. And it was as far away you could get from Iran or the Iran that was being refashioned under the Islamic faction there in the late 70s and early 80s. And I remember, um, to give you a vivid memory of this, so 
my parents, every Halloween, we would get in the car and we would drive to the Castro, which is the gay quarter of San Francisco, historically. And it seems so bizarre to me now, you know, what's this immigrant family doing, piling into the car and driving? Honestly, it was with this real feeling of not just wonder, but appreciation. I mean, it really stood, I think, for my parents, though they were themselves pretty conservative, it was such a celebration of difference and of life. <laughs> that creates a little cognitive dissonance. Because, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and if it does it for me, I can only imagine what it does for you because your family was Iranian Muslim. You described your mom as devout, though she didn't wear a veil. Yes. But you once wrote that the most Iranian and Islamic thing about you was how your mother raised you. Yes. How did you reconcile being the daughter of immigrants and yet also being this American kid in California of all places. Yeah, I mean, I cannot say that I reconciled them. And I think a lot of why I write is that I'm trying to understand these tensions within myself or within a culture. But I, you know, I, I feel like for many years I had a double life. Honestly, I had my Iranian life, which was the life of my home and my family. And, you know, so much of my life was lived as an Iranian, probably more Iranian than I would have been if I'd grown up in Iran even, because it happens to immigrants that they sometimes, you know, they really enshrine the values and the the customs and so forth in beautiful and also really difficult ways, I think. Um, but the other part of my life was American. And I, I have to say, I was really ashamed a lot of the time about being Iranian. And it wasn't always easy to be Iranian growing up in California in the 80s and 90s. It's still not easy to be Middle Eastern. For a lot of growing up years, I definitely felt a shame about that. And I did a lot of a kind of passing, I would say, looking back at it now. What's the most Iranian thing that remains about you? I mean, I think I, you know, I still live with my mother. My mother is now in her 80s and she's got advanced Alzheimer's and I do feel sometimes, you know, the American side of me feels like, really, are you going to try to do this on your own? Um, and I have been taking care of her for a long time. Oh, Jasmine, that's so hard. It really is so hard for anybody who's in that situation. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and then the, the Iranian side of me, for many, many reasons, I just feel like I couldn't not do it. Um, that's just how I was brought up. It's partly expectation. It's partly my own choice. But in my life right now, that's probably how it expresses itself the most profoundly. What's the most American thing about you? <laughs> <laughs> the most American thing about me? You know, I'm really an open book. And that's not something that I would say Iranians necessarily have been able to be. Um, there's a lot, particularly among women that you keep private, that's secret, there might be shame, a feeling of preserving your family's honor. I'm pretty stripped of those kinds of considerations on the day-to-day. -day. If my mother had the presence of mind, she'd be horrified by the kinds of things I'm willing to share in conversation and absolutely through my writing. You know, I was reading a review of one of your books. And it was described as a powerful novel about a woman who shuns convention <laughs> to follow her passion. And the funny thing is, I couldn't remember which <laughs> book 
that was a review for. And I thought, well, who cares? Because it fits both of your fictional books. Uh But it also occurred to me that it isn't just a description of your subject matter, but it could also apply to you. Do you see yourself as a woman who shuns convention to follow her passion? I do. You know, I probably would not express it so boldly if I was describing myself. (laughs) But, you know, there's a reason I'm attracted to these stories. And there's a reason I write them. I have in my own life faced certain certain conflicts, certain conventions, absolutely. Um, and for me, writing and reading, for sure, have blasted open possibilities. And so in my own writing, that's something that excites me and, and that I hope to pass on to readers. Hmm. What do you think the most unconventional thing you've ever done is? Becoming a writer is pretty unconventional, honestly. So I'm not second generation. I'm not even first generation. I'm 0.5 is what they call people like me who came over as children. I think, you know, for immigrants, for first generation immigrants, it is a very difficult road to authorship, right? I think it's difficult for many people to become writers. But if you're coming from that immigrant background, there's so much emphasis on making good, being good, you know, um, entering a profession that's going to help provide for your family. I had a lot of pressure on me. I actually went to law school and finished was to leave the law to pursue literature and writing. And that was pretty dicey. <laughs> Sometimes I say that in my family, getting a PhD in English was like running away with the Grateful Dead. It was pretty, you know, shocking. And my parents did not approve. And there were definitely a lot of moments where they tried very hard to steer me onto a different course. Mm, Boy, that's inspiring, though, that you did follow your passion. You are also not just an author, but you are a professor of creative writing. And because both of your novels are historical fiction, I'd like to see if you have any tips for any of the aspiring authors out there of how to maintain really good storytelling, a strong narrative, when you're also writing about a real person. Are there any like tricks to the trade to do that? Yeah, I mean, that is just, it's such a great question because I for sure recognize when it's not done well Usually when it's not done well, it's because people are trying to be too careful and too close to what really happened. Um, I think when you're writing historical fiction, you must find the story within the history. That means you can't tell everything. It's useless. Don't even try. You're not going to, um, you're not going to be able to cover anything. And even if you could, there's a place for that. And that's called biography or that's called history. As a novelist, you're really looking for character. You're looking for complication, for crises um, and anything historical that you bring in. And I'm saying even down to the level of a description of somebody's shoe, it has to serve the story. That is where your attention has to stay. Is the history I'm bringing in, even if it's as micro as you know a detail of someone's wardrobe, is it serving the story? And that can be difficult. It can be really difficult to stay that devoted to a story when you're maybe really excited about all of this information that you've amassed in the course of your research. 
Jasmine, I think you make such an important point. And, you know, it's interesting to me because I think the art and challenge of writing across genres is often just that, knowing what is and what isn't in service to this story. Jasmine, I have one last question for you, which is if you were to write a six-word memoir, what would it be? Well, I really liked that quote. I think it was a review you were quoting earlier about defying convention. Um, that sounded really good. But if I were to pen it, um, I might go with immigrant girl reads, grows up, writes. <laughs> well, Jasmine, reading and writing your way through life, that's my kind of memoir, I got to say. I want to thank you for your time, Jasmine, and for the timeliness of this interview, because I know you know that Dorothea Lange actually died this month in 1965, just as she was preparing an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. She would have been the first ever female photographer to have a one-person show. So your novel picked such worthy material and also brought Dorothea Lange back to life for me and for so many of your readers. So I really appreciate that. My pleasure entirely. Thank you so much. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Jasmine Darsnick's best-selling books, including her riveting new release, The Bohemians, please visit jasminedarsnick.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, JoniBCole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.